0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you on this day the Lord has given us to be together. Always eager to study God's Word with you. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 14. Um, If you're new, maybe you're visiting today, maybe for the first time or something, Uh, we've been working through Romans for a little over a year now. We've taken a few breaks here and there, but we are slowly uh, coming to, towards the conclusion of this study uh, We find ourselves in, the chap, in chapter 14 this morning uh, Verses 1-12 through 12. And so that will be where we give our focus and attention today And as we do so, praying that the Lord will give us insight and understanding to His glory So let's do that now, let's pray Father, would you help us As we consider your word today from Romans 14, would you open our eyes and ears and help us to receive the truth? Lord, would you change us by it? Would you help us to reflect your character more because of what's in these verses? Father, would you help us to love one another better and more in line with Christ as a result of considering these things today? So, Lord, would you work in us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been some years ago now. I think early two thousands that an article came out by Dr. Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and in that article he highlighted this concept that he coined called theological triage. Now, I don't know if you you probably have heard the word triage and know what that means, and it's a medical term. Uh, it's a French word that means to sort. Um, and oftentimes in the medical field, they use this idea of triage, uh, especially in emergency situations. Whether it's in the emergency room, or maybe it's in the context of war or a, a disaster, a natural disaster that has that has uh, taken place, where triage uh, is something used to assess uh, cases, medical cases in this case, uh, in order to get the right care, the quickest care to. Uh, the people in order to maximize the, the, the number of survivors. So it's, it's this idea of sorting to get the best care in the fastest way to the people who need it the most. And that's triage in a medical sense. Well, this idea of theological triage that Dr. Moeller came out with was this idea of sorting through doctrinal matters in order to identify the theological urgency of particular teachings and how we might live life in light of those teachings. So in that article, he highlighted that there are first-order, second-order, and third-order matters when it comes to doctrine. First-order would be those most fundamental truths to the Christian faith. So if a teaching is a first-order teaching, to deny a teaching in that category would be to deny the faith. This is what sorts uh, those who are orthodox in their understanding of the Christian faith versus a cult, for example. You you have to hold to these teachings in order to be a Christian, first order. Then there are second-order beliefs, doctrines. And this is where believing Christians may disagree over certain matters And even in that disagreement, there may be certain boundaries that would emerge, such as being in different churches or different denominations. This would what would often mark the difference between Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, different things like that because of their view or their teaching on these secondary matters, not essential to the gospel, maybe. Um, And and sometimes these doctrines don't nice, they don't fit nice and neat in a category, and so you have to understand that. Many of them do, but sometimes you, you you may be, well, is this a first order or a second order? And sometimes you might have to work through that a little bit more. But second order, believing Christians may disagree, but they're probably going to be in separate churches, separate denominations, not necessary for salvation, but perhaps for being in fellowship in the same church. And then there are third order matters. And this is where believing Christians may disagree and still remain in close fellowship, especially in the context of the same local church. Well, as we approach Romans 14 and 15, in fact, these next three Sundays, beginning today, next week, and the week after, we're gonna be considering this idea of Christian freedom and this idea of how do we get along when we disagree over those third order matters, those tertiary, tertiary issues where we may not agree But yet, we're still in the same church. These are not salvation matters. These are not matters that that necessitate you being a Christian, but how you live out your Christian life. Romans chapter 14 and 15, we're going to see, even here in the church of Rome, how some disagreements had emerged among the believers there. And the disputes they were having were over matters that we could easily place within those third order categories. Maybe some of them would creep up to second order, but they're not primary issues. These are not essential matters that the church at Rome were coming to odds with. They were were trying to think through and how they were going to live life together in the church of Rome when they disagreed over these third order or these non-essential matters, we could say. Non-essential to the gospel is what I mean by that. So they had some differences, and they were trying to figure it all out. Differences over moral and ethical issues. Religious practice, even. That's a good question, isn't it? How do we as Christians live together and fellowship together when we might disagree over non-essential matters of life and doctrine? I think it's an important one. Because this is often one of those places where churches find themselves when they're disagreeing over these non-essential matters, non-essential to the gospel, non-essential matters, where they're disagreeing and and church conflict happens. Churches have split over these issues. And that should never be the case. So how do we live together as Christians when we might disagree over these non-essential matters of life and doctrine? Well, that's exactly what our text today and the text in the coming weeks deals with. So let's consider now from Romans chapter 14, the first 12 verses as we hear these read together. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. over issues, non-essential issues, are bound to take place, oftentimes in the same church, especially over these kinds of matters. And one of the things that we need to remember when we're thinking through these things is that when disagreements occur and maybe different opinions arise over a particular matter, I think that that we don't always need to try to eliminate those differences necessarily, but we do at least have to figure out how to love and welcome each other in those differences. That's the key to this text, is how do we do that? What what are we called to as believers here? You see, conflict over non-essential matters, again, as I said earlier, has been a plague to many churches. And brothers and sisters, hear me, please. As members of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, we must be committed as believers in this same local church to keeping the gospel primary. We must be unified in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must agree on that. We must be rallying together around that. You see, the problem happens is when churches begin to rally around lesser things, I'm not saying they're unimportant things, but when they begin to, to, to identify themselves as we are a church that does this or we are a church that does that or we are a church that doesn't do that and you're not finding your unity in the gospel, then that's where all kinds of problems take place. So friends, hear me. We must be united around the gospel. There is no other gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen, that is the good news this world needs to hear. And that is what we are called to preach and proclaim. We must be unified around that, but what do we do when we may find disagreements on other issues? Well, that's what we're wanting to consider. How do we stay united around the gospel and yet leave space for people to come to different conclusions over non-essential matters? That's kind of what we're gonna try to answer over these next few weeks. So today, the the big idea that we want to consider is this. It's pretty straightforward, and he says it there in the first verse. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So here we see that the calling that we have is that we are called to love our fellow brothers and sisters even when we disagree over those non-essential matters. And here we're going to see in this text three reasons why we should do this. So today, if you will, we're, we're kind of setting up the motivation why we should do this, Why we should love each other even in our disagreements. Let's consider these together. First of all, we're called to love and welcome each other because God has welcomed you. See that in verses 1 through 3. Welcome each other because God has welcomed you. Again, the disagreements that have emerged here in Rome were likely disagreements that were occurring between Jewish and Gentile believers church at Rome was predominantly Gentile in nature, but there was a good number of Jewish believers there. And so the disagreements that were occurring were in most part, not in every case, but in most part probably along ethnic lines and and because of this Jewish Gentile presence in the church. You see, Jewish believers were saved out of Judaism, which consisted of a strict obedience to the law plus the legalistic additions that the Pharisees had added. While Gentile believers had no law. They didn't have that background. And so, you put them all now in the same church, then they're trying to figure out how to live. So, you can imagine what, what, what went on the first time they had their first pig roast, right? I mean, Gentiles and Jews coming together, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute here. We can't, we can't do this, some would be saying. See, the heart of the issue was that The Jewish believers would have carried a whole lot of regulations and strictness and law-keeping into their newfound faith in Christ, while the Gentiles brought no such baggage. They had their own, for sure. But it wasn't quite like the Jews. And you see in verses 2 and 3, the situation is explained for us quite clearly here, isn't it? One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. The key verse there. Let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here's the reason. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. So here in this text, the disputed matters are identified somewhat for us. And those particular disputed matters between these two groups of people in the church at Rome ranged over the eating of meat, holy days or Sabbath keeping the Jewish calendar, and in verse 21, there's a reference to wine, the drinking of wine. I'll let Jeremy handle that one next week. But Paul, notice he uses the language of weak in faith versus those who are strong. Verse, five, verse you get to get to chapter 15, verse one. Where Paul uses that language is strong, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. So he uses this, this language of weak in faith and strong in faith. And when you hear that, you may think, well, I definitely don't want to be the weak one, right? Well, understand what he's speaking about here. To be weak in faith was not a reference to salvation as if the weak in faith somehow had less of a salvation or were some barely kind of in the door, if you will. That's not what he's saying. It had to do with the implications of their faith, how they (laughs) lived out their faith. One scholar said, the issue here is not the one who has the most faith. The issue is who thinks his faith lets him or her do this or that. That's the issue. So as we consider these, the, the weak in faith were likely, primarily, those of the Jewish category who had a very strict food and Sabbath regulation background, that were now bringing that to bear into their newfound faith. So their conscience lacked the confidence to do something that they had long been forbidden to do, even though Christ said it's okay to eat meat, for example. And so their faith was weakened that way. Wasn't So understand, weak in faith, strong in faith, both are equally Christian. One is not more saved than the other. That's impossible, right? So both were justified by faith through Christ. Both were saved by the same gospel. And so it had nothing to do with their standing before a holy God. It had everything to do with how they fleshed out that standing, how they lived out their life together. So understand, to be weak in faith is not to somehow be a lesser Christian, or to be strong in faith is to be some... Super extra credit Christian, I not used that one in a while. Right? It's, it's not that at all. It's the implications of how they're living it out. So weak in faith, likely Jews who had a, a conscience that was sensitive, very sensitive to certain things, while the Gentiles didn't have those regulations, and their conscience allowed them to do what the weak would not. One way you could say is, is the weak in faith had a sensitive conscience, and the strong in faith had an informed conscience. To be clear, you need to get this, Paul, a Jew, would have counted himself among the strong. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong, he says. And he would have said the strong in faith was the correct position. But you have to understand what he's calling us to here. He's urging the strong to accept the weak, to welcome, to to humble himself for the sake of the weak. He addresses both groups in this passage. Seems like at the beginning he puts a little bit more weight on the strong to embrace the weak, but he's addressing both because the both tended towards separate errors. The strong tended toward arrogance. What do you mean you can't do that? I'm free to do what I want. You know, Christ has freed me up. I can eat that. I can drink that. I don't have to be restricted to some day of observance. All days are important. And you could see how that, that mentality could lead to this arrogance and to kind of look down upon the weak as if they are somehow just ignorant, whereas the weak tended toward judge, to being judgmental. Critical, hypercritical. Oh, you can't do that. A Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't live that way. You see, you see that two errors that both would be prone to. And Paul is addressing both here. He's, he's saying, listen, be careful toward each other. Welcome each other. Love each other, even in your disagreements. There was something else no doubt Paul had in mind as well. This was not merely a division around food or Sabbath-keeping. It was likely a division that was falling down ethnic lines as well. You see, ethnic unity was of great concern to the Apostle Paul, and it ought to be of great concern to us as well. Had the church divided over ethnic issues, the testimony to the witness of the church would have been disastrous. There would have been all kinds of fallout because of this. And yet what we're seeing here in the early church and what we continue to see on throughout history is that the gospel brings both Jew and Gentile in. The dividing wall of hostility is done away with and we are now one in Christ. So Paul is urging unity. Even when there was disagreement, serious disagreement. Please hear me. These non-essential matters, these third-order, maybe some second-order issues, I'm not at all saying these are unimportant or we should just kind of shake it off. No, these are important issues. They're just not primary to the gospel issues. They're just not essential to the point of being part of the Christian community. Okay, that's what we're saying. These are important matters. And how we handle them do matter. It does matter. So he's urging this unity. Notice he says in the text, let not the one despise the other. There's a great pastoral concern here that there is this, this friction, this conflict that's going on in the local church. And he's, he's saying this, these issues apparently are rising to the point of there's, you're, you're hating each other. There, there's this temptation to despise the other because they do not hold the same viewpoint you do or live the same practice that you do. And the underlying reason he gives in verses 1 through 3 for us not to despise the other is because God has welcomed each of us. You see that there at the end of verse 3. So here we're called to welcome, to accept. And friends, that's much stronger than just put up with. It's not just put up with. It's embrace. It's welcome that person. See them as a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. Understand that they have inherent value and dignity and worth. Understand that even though, oh, even though you may disagree with them at the end of the day, they have just as much a hold of heaven as you do. Friends, when we find it difficult to accept someone because of a disagreement, we need to remember that we're talking about someone for who Jesus bled And died. God has chosen them. He has sought them. He has bought them with his blood. He's adopted them into his family. And he's welcomed them. They have the same grace you do. They've been saved by the same gospel as you have. They have the same Savior as you. It's important for us to understand how we live in the midst of our disagreements. A few points of just some application here when we think through this. Because God has welcomed us, we need to welcome others. And what that means is that we need to embrace those who disagree with us. You. you You need to embrace people you disagree with. Not necessarily saying you need to embrace their view. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to embrace them. They're a sibling. They're, they're, they're a sibling in Christ. We get to know them, listen to them. Be, be quick to listen and slow to speak. If you're having a hard time with someone, shut your mouth and open your ears. Spend time with them. Try to understand where they're coming from. You may still disagree. But don't cast them off merely because you do. Embrace those you disagree with. Friends, I just ask you, do you make space for people that hold different views than you? Do you make space? You know, if you were to watch the social media world, I wonder if Christians are doing this. I really wonder. Do you, do you make space for those who may hold different political viewpoints? Listen, Jesus, listen, he, he's, he's not an advocate of any political party. Some of you Republicans may have it hard to believe in your mind that you can actually be a Christian and a Democrat. You may wonder how that could even be. You know, this is what I'm talking about. How do you get along with those people? How do they get along with you? Do you make space for people who hold different views than you? Do you are you willing to listen and, and embrace them? And the problem is you can see how we can take issues like that, and that's just one example among many we could talk about, of how we raise issues up the ladder of importance and make them primary issues. So embrace those you disagree with. Another point of application is that the strong must not criticize the weak. you might conclude that you're free to eat anything or that having a beer or a glass of wine is okay. But friend, how you treat the brother or sister that doesn't practice that matters much. You see, the temptation for the strong is those who feel free from certain constraints often find it difficult to understand reasons why others would constrain themselves. And they may have very good reasons. To you, if you're in the strong category in this case, it appears irrational. Why would they think that way? And then there's the temptation to deride or poke fun at them and label them just kind of legalists. Maybe they are. But Jesus loved legalists. He died for legalists. He embraced them. He spent time with them. He loved them. He cared for them. Taught them. Was patient. So the strong must not be uber-critical of the weak. Friend, listen, if someone is genuinely seeking Christ, and their conscience in a particular area does not permit them to do something that yours permits you to do, then you are called to respect such a person. You are called to be patient with such people. But there's also command here for the weak. The weak must not condemn the strong. You may think that certain things, the strong in faith, Quote unquote. I know we don't think this way in our own thinking, but this is what the categories Paul gives us here. You may think that, the, that certain things the strong in faith do are wrong. But brothers and sisters, you must be slow to condemn people for something God never condemns them for. Listen. For those who are weak in faith. You should never establish a standard of righteousness that God doesn't. God doesn't need help with holiness. He's defined it quite well, and none of us make it. That's why we need Christ. He doesn't need your help, to, like a Pharisee, to come along and help describe what holiness looks like in these particular ways. I know for many of us we're thinking, yeah, of course not. You'd be surprised how many churches do this. As a test of fellowship, as a test of genuine faith in Christ, you have to live this way or do, do this. Friends, be careful not to make non-essential matters essential matters. That's the danger. The reality is, is that we all live out of a context, don't we? Context often shapes and informs the way our consciousness think. You may have been raised in a very strong fundamentalist context where non essential matters were raised to essential matters. Or you could have been raised in a very liberal, unchurch context where you didn't hear about anything essential, especially the, the gospel. So this often shapes us and and, and has impact upon us. Friends, I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that we need to understand that we're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not saved based upon our view and practice of third-order matters. And since Christ has welcomed us, even in our differences, we ought to welcome others and one another. So we welcome because we've been welcomed. Number two, welcome each other because you're under the Lordship of Christ. Verses four through nine, Paul really gets into the Lordship of Christ here. In fact, he uses the word Lord at least eight to nine different times in these verses. And One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that when we are saved, when God takes us from being an unbeliever and makes us a believer, not a Christian, now a Christian, from darkness to light, he saves us not into some kind of Christian club. He brings us into a kingdom where there's a king reigning. Several things that Paul highlights here about the lordship of Christ. Number one, believers belong to the Lord. See that in verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. There's the fact that Jesus is Lord of all of us means that all judgments, ultimate judgments, are to be made by him. Not us. Now there are appropriate times, Matthew chapter 7 does teach, where we are to help our brothers and sisters with the speck in their eyes. It just tells us to make sure we get the log out of ours first. I often hear Christians say, well, judge not, lest you be judged. And so we can't say anything to anybody. No, it's actually we're called to help and encourage and point out things in people's lives that may be ensnaring them. So we have a responsibility and obligation to each other. We're talking about judging whether or not they're Christian or not based upon some external factor of third order matter. So your fellow believer is not your servant. He or she belongs to Jesus and he or she will be held accountable to Christ. The moment you stand in judgment over another you take on a role that was never meant to be yours. Who are you to judge, he says? Remember that it is the Lord, not our fellow Christian, whom the believer is called to please and who will ultimately determine the acceptability of the believer. And even in judgment, whether one stands or falls, will be the Lord's doing on that day. So understand that all of us belong to Jesus. We, we, we have a responsibility and a relationship to each other for sure, but we, we are the Lord's. We will give account to Him. Another point of this lordship is that believers must submit their conscience to the Lord see that in verse 5, but it also goes down to verse 9. Whenever we discuss this important topic of Christian freedom, verse 5 is always an important verse to consider. I think it's one of the key verses in this discussion. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So there's the distinction, difference, dispute, we could say, And then he goes on to say, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It gets to this idea or this principle of conscience. It's an important point that I think that we neglect oftentimes, the importance of our conscience in faithfulness and obedience. When we think about our conscience, well, what is it? At the end of the day, our conscience is, is how we speak to ourselves and reason with ourselves about what is right or wrong. That's what we're talking about when we talk about our conscience. It's an awareness or this sense. It's, it's the, it's the um, inner voice of saying, don't do that bad idea versus it's okay. It, it's that, that, that inward voice, if you, if you will, that helps you conclude, determine, to reason as to what is right or wrong. And both the strong and the weak have consciences, and they draw conclusions based upon them. Now, obviously, we would say that the conscience needs to be submitted to the Word of God. Amen. Absolutely. That's where we all have to we're not saying that our conscience is just free to roam wherever it wants to and we can do whatever we want to do, then there's no faith at all. But our conscience, as it is submitted to the authority of Christ and the authority of God's Word, even when that happens, we will oftentimes see how our conscience may, may differ. It's not that God's Word is fluid somehow. There's a lot to be discussed on this matter. Paul goes on to expand a bit in verse 5, 6, and following. He says, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who abstains does the same thing for the same reason. He's showing here that One who has a clear conscience means that whatever we do, we're doing because we think it honors the Lord. There's a motivating factor there, and it is the glory of God. It's the honor of the Lord. Those who abstained from certain foods did so because they thought and believed that by doing so they honored the Lord. And those who ate the pig at the pig roast did so because they thought in doing so that they were. Doing so in honor of the Lord. So it's our conscience that must be submitted to the Lord. Now listen, your conscience may very well lead you to conclude that something is wrong when your brother or sister may not think that way at all. This sounds a little tricky, doesn't it? Examples abound in the church. You may have a very strong conviction that a particular Bible translation is the only one we should use, whereas other believers may think various translations are helpful. You may have very strong convictions about church music and how that ought to be done in a particular context, and yet your brother or sister may see that very differently. We could talk about dress. Can't believe the preacher has jeans on. Can you believe that? Whereas you may think it's okay. You see what I'm saying? Raising, raising third-order issues up the, up the thing can, can be a temptation for us. Engagement in social causes can be an issue where we disagree on how much we're called to invest in our communities and those kinds of things. Had it not rained today, some of you would have gone home and mowed your yard today and thought another thing about it, while those other, others would have been like, what are you doing mowing the yard on Sunday?" Some of you have read all the Harry Potter books. Confession time for some of you. And others of you think, that's demonic. Some of you last night had a glass of wine and drank a beer. And others of you would gasp at such a thing. Some of you send your kids to public schools. Others to private. Others do homeschool. Some of you have tattoos and others of you think that's probably not good. Some of you plan to redeem Halloween and take your kids trick-or-treating, and others of you would never think of such a thing. You see what I'm saying? Uh, These are real issues, I I know some of them sound funny, but these are real issues that Christians wrestle with. And every one of those issues, people in this church, I know, I use those because I know, these are difference of opinions that exist in this congregation. So I didn't just pull those out of a book. I pulled them out of you. Well, how do you live together on October 31st? I'm going to Brazil, so I'm not going to even be part of it. <laughs> I mean, there, these, are, these are important issues that we need to work through. And we don't need to, when one sees a difference, we don't need to begin to push away. We need to, oh, well, what are your thoughts about that? How are we going to live together? Our conscience is often what dictates how we live out practice. And that conscience must be submitted to the Lord, not to our fellow believers. Right? If you are doing something because someone else told you you should or shouldn't do it, what have you done? You're, you're informing your conscience in the, with the wrong tool, with the wrong source conscience ought to be submitted to scripture. Listen, it happens all the time. Christians read the Bible, they love Jesus, they've embraced the gospel, they're following him, seeking to honor him all their life, and they still disagree on what many of these things. And they're being faithful to Christ, and God is honored in both of them. Again, a reminder to us all, it's easy for Christians and churches to become flexible on the indisputable matters like gospel matters while becoming quite rigid and unflexible over matters which we have freedom. Be careful with that. There is no flexibility with the gospel. There is some flexibility in how we live life in these third order issues, these non-essential matters. Notice here, you read this passage. Paul's in the strong camp. But notice how generous he is towards the weak. He's assuming the best motive in both groups. He's saying, you know, for those of you who abstain from eating meat, I know that you're doing it because you are honoring the Lord. You really think you're honoring Jesus by doing that. And those of you who are eating the meat, you're doing that because you think in doing so you're honoring the Lord. Notice he's assuming the best in both cases. He's assuming the best motive in both cases. Friends, we should do the same. When a believer makes a certain choice that kind of rubs you wrong, and you're like, ah, I don't know about that. Is your response to to be immediately critical and judgmental? Or do you assume the best of that person? Paul's word here, there are bad motives to do a lot of things. And here he's pointing out the motive behind both the weak and the strong is the honor of the Lord. There, there are bad motives, right? Trying to be a people pleaser. you know. Maybe, maybe you want to break free from a strict background you had. Maybe you want to be truly accepted by one group or the other or those kinds of things. None of those are good motives. The honor of the Lord is the right motive. The glory of God is the right motive. And the motive behind any belief or action ought to be the glory of God. Listen, both the strong and weak can honor the Lord. Get this. Both the strong and the weak can honor the Lord even while holding different conclusions about non-essential matters. I wish somebody would have told me that years ago. There would have been a lot of I wouldn't have had to confess being judgmental and quick to be critical because I didn't assume the best of someone. It's important. And last, we welcome each other because we are all accountable to God. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God. Notice Paul in these final verses of this section, notice he gives this final reason two times, that we all are accountable to God with an Old Testament verse in between. He says the same thing twice with a, with a verse in between. We all stand before the judgment seat of God, verse 10. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God with a verse of Old Testament in, in the middle. Each of us will give account. And on that day, all that will matter is what God thinks about how we lived out our lives. Not what your weak or strong brother or sister ultimately thought. I think their opinion is important. You should listen to them. You should have conversation with them. Not be quick to write them off. And you should, you'd be surprised how much we can learn from each other. And, 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 and if our goal at the end of the day over these non-essential matters is not to try to convince the other that your position is the right one, but we just actually lean into the conversation a bit and be patient with each other, you'd be surprised how often we may come still to disagreement. We might be unified, maybe in a stronger way all of us are going to give account to the Lord and at the end of the day, it's what he thinks is what matters. All our petty divisions will amount to a bunch of nothing on that day. You know, if we, truth be known, if we actually thought more about that day and the fact that we'll stand before a holy and righteous God and give account To him on that day, it's likely that the more we consider that day, the less we'll cast judgment on those around us today. All of us have got to go there. All of us are going to stand there and give accounts. And the more we think about that, about our own lives, the the less likely we'll be maybe to cast judgment and be tempted to be Lord of those around us. Welcome each other because we are all accountable to God. We've been welcomed, he's our Lord, and we will give account to him. So, whether you are a teetotaling, Sabbatarian vegan, or a wine-sipping, weekend-working carnivore, you must welcome each other. You must love each other. You must embrace each other because Jesus died for both of you and his blood covers our sins as we are called to accept each other in Christ. Churches will always have those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. You notice Romans is not about individual Christianity, about how just speaking to you. Paul's writing to a community, isn't he? In our faith, as we live out the gospel, we do so in community together. And sometimes that can be challenging, especially when we're trying to figure these kinds of things out. But listen, it's not impossible. Challenging, yes. Impossible, no. So friends, let us not be overly focused on the non-essentials. Let's think about them. Let's give good thought to them, biblical thought about them. Let's talk about them. Let's have conversation about them. And let's see more about this next week, how we're to live with each other in this kind of way. But let's not major on the minors. Let's all give ourselves to the gospel. As one put it so many years ago, in a very common phrase you've probably heard many times, in essentials, let's have unity. In non-essentials, let's give liberty. But in all things, let's have charity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for teaching us, exhorting us, convicting us. We thank you, Father, for this word that we have to be instructed by today. Father, each of us in this room have certainly fallen short in the area that we are considering today. Whether we're among the strong or whether we're among the weak, whether we're tempted to arrogance or tempted to judgmentalism. Father, all of us have erred. All of us have wronged others. And for that, we ask your forgiveness. And we ask for your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us that we may truly welcome and accept and love each other, even in the midst of our differences. God, give us fruitful conversations. Give us a love and a, and, a, and a desire to embrace each other. Father, we need your help because we're prone. We're prone to error. So, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your strength. We ask for your wisdom and discernment. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to love in the way that you've loved us. Lord, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus, for that is where we find our hope. That is where we find our unity. And Father, when it comes to these non-essential matters, Lord, would you help us to figure out the best way that we know how, empowered by your Spirit, to love each other. We pray this in Christ's name.